This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of See Here is brought to you by Dr. Twilliger's Institute of Happy Hands. to another episode of uh, See Here. My name is Tim. I'm here in Korea. I'm here with my uh, astute fellow film fanatic, music fanatics, one Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Hey, how's it going? And the host with the most, my man in Melbourne. You know him, you love him. The living legend, one Mr. Morris Brzezinski. Good evening, Morris. Work. I, th- I thought you were going to introduce Ross Knight from the Cosmic Psychos. You were being so <laughs> so praiseworthy there, Tim. Well, you got you got a lot to live up to uh, today, Morris. Oh dear! After yeah. that introduction. I do. I can't can't suck now. No, hey man, you never suck. Oh, you're too kind. Yeah. Well, tonight we are going to look at a film that's uh, a little left the center from what we usually do. This was a selection I made. And one that uh, brings back the memories of youth might be familiar to some, might be something new for others. The film I'm talking about is a film called The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. And this was a Dr. Seuss-driven joint. And Seuss, this is a film from 1953 that Dr. Seuss, a.k.a. Theodore Geisel, had direct control over and a direct part of and we're going to get into this tonight and before i begin i'd like to ask my two astute uh, co-hosts here have you either one of you had had you ever heard of this film before absolutely had heard of it i'd never actually seen it and it long been on my list of yes i need to see that but uh, hadn't actually uh, seen it. i think maybe i don't know if, if this was um I'm making a bit of a side diversion here, but the first thing where, that I possibly heard that was of any reference to this film, there was an episode of uh, Get Smart where there was a, a boy genius, boy, a scientist whose name was Dr. T. Wow, well, here's another one that might blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Bernie, uh, you're a fan of The Simpsons, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, the there's a huge you can see um a huge influence of this in the simpsons in general i think but yeah sorry okay well there's a direct one because you know sideshow bob is bob twilliger yeah right right his name's bob twilliger yeah and i always thought that was really that was really really interesting had you seen this film before bernie uh, I hadn't. I'm, uh, I was in the same boat as uh, Morris. I was aware of it, but uh, never got around to it. So interesting experience, interesting film. 
I'd seen it years and years ago when I was a kid in the theater, Saturday afternoons, they used to show double features. And a lot of times, you know, the movies were, you know, just boring as shit. Like, we you know, I'd take my younger brother and we'd go see Disney or they'd show Born Free or something of the nature. And then one Saturday, I remember there was a double bill around Christmas time and it was uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians and the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. And uh, I just remember, you know, seeing both of them and thinking that they were both just absolutely absurd. But seeing 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T when I was about 10 years old, there was just something about it that always just grabbed me. And uh, we're going to get into this later on, but I think that there's a lot of people that owe a large portion of their careers to this film. Oh, yeah. Big time. And uh, I think it's ridiculous how some things stand out and uh, are made really completely uh, apparent. But before we we get into any more details, uh, I guess we should uh, clearly explain what the film is about. Can I can I do that, huh, huh, sir, sir, sir? Sure, sure. Go right ahead. I've written the plot synopsis because I think they gave away too much in the IMDb. But uh, oh, yes. before um, oh yes, Morris, before you do that, could I just ask you guys a question about mm-hmm. Doctor Seuss? I mean, as I understand it, Doctor Seuss is is kind of an institution in the states. Mm. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I assume it's probably relatively similar for you, Tim. Oh yeah, totally. I Canada. grew up with Doctor uh, Seuss. Oh, big, big time. Yeah. Oh, huge. How about you, Morris? Is, yeah, I, I read Australia? Uh, as a as a kid. I read, and everyone who I knew, you know, when I was a, when we were kids, had read the Cat in the Hat books. You know, umpteen sure. times, and you know, Hop on Pop, and all other sort of literary classics. You know, Green Eggs and Ham, and the like. But funnily enough, I wasn't aware until a lot later of books which I'll actually sort of be making a bit of a reference to later on, uh, like the Lorax and. Yertle the Turtle, but I have very specific reasons for mentioning those within the context of the film discussion, so I'll come back to that later. But yeah, but certainly there were some of the simpler books that I'd read and had read to me countless times as a kid. How about you, Benny? Well, that's the interesting thing. I don't think here in the UK um, he was anywhere near uh, as, you know, kind of recognisable as he was elsewhere. I mean, as a child, I, I don't think I was aware of Dr. Seuss at all. Hmm. So um, it's not, and, and I don't know whether that was just me, but certainly, you know, I, I don't recall ever reading or seeing any of his books. So, yeah, I've always thought of him as more of a, a kind of American phenomenon, to, to be honest. So, which, I mean, you know, I might be totally mistaken and just had a very sheltered childhood. I don't know. But um, yeah, he certainly didn't seem to be that big a deal over here in the UK. So, and again, that's probably one of the reasons why I, I was not even aware of this film until uh, sort of much later, you know, so. Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say that, you know, we'll get into this a bit later, but what is it with authors of of children's literature where they wind up just producing a lot of really dodgy material? I mean, like, it. this goes back to, like, Lewis Carroll with Alice in Wonderland. I mean, Roald Dahl, he's written some very dodgy adult Base books as well. I mean, Shel Silverstein uh, and Seuss with this film. There's there's a lot more going on with this so when, film. When than... you, so when you say dodgy, I think what you're really meaning is subversive. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, because there's a there's a lot going on here that is it's just you know at first I'm thinking is it just me and then I'm like no there's there's more than meets the eye. I think it's got something to do with the fact that probably there was a time where children's authors either realized that kids were far more intelligent than maybe uh, a, a lot of other producers of children's literature or children's film may have actually given them credit for. Or maybe they were just wanting to give some food for thought to the adults who had to read it to those kids. But I think even, even one of the points in this film is that the main character Bart Collins, and we'll sort of talk the storyline in a sec. But he's, you know, he when he does um, this one song about, you know, you adults don't really recognise us kids. You know, we're smart, or we're we're not yeah. someone who should shove aside. And that's possibly yeah. his own message: is that you know, take your kids seriously. Now, just because we're kids, because we're sort of small. Because we're closer to the ground And you are bigger pound by pound You have no right 
You have no right to push and shove us little kids around. Now just because your throat has got a deeper voice. But I'm just saying that I don't know if it's just the age that we live in now, but I mean, you know, I remember seeing this as a child and thinking, you know, didn't think anything of it, but watching it now in the generation that I'm in, it just seems really skeevy in a lot of places. <laughs> Do you mean, uh, I think uh, Bart's relationship with, called Mr. Kobolowski, or was that Zabladowski? Yeah, there were a few moments where I was kind of thinking that this um, th- this kind of relationship wouldn't happen in a film nowadays, would it? Uh, no, well, no. I, I disagree. I disagree because he's looking for a father figure, and that's the relationship that they have is one of, I don't have a father, I need a father substitute, and you're going to be it. Yeah, I mean, well, at least that's how I looked at it. Right. Yeah, maybe I'm, um, yeah, maybe that says more about me then. I don't know. <laughs> uh, can I give yeah. a plot synopsis at this point? Sure. Okay, so I've written down here. Bart Collins lives with his mother, who has been widowed, and they're played by uh, Tommy Pettig and Mary Healy. At the film's mm-hmm. start, he's having a piano lesson under the tutelage of the stern piano teacher, Dr. Tuelica, played by Hans Conried. While his mother and plumber August Zabladowski look on, who uh, and August Zabladowski is played by Peter Lindhayes. As soon as Doctor Tewilika leaves, Bart falls asleep while practicing and dreams of Doctor T running a cruel prison-like school to teach 500 boys to play the world's largest piano. And hijinks ensue. Nothing sinister or strange about that at all. And that's why I'm, that's what I was getting at earlier is that yeah. you know, like the uh, the beanies with the hands on the top of them and everything else. It's just hmm. Yeah. So I, I wanted to bring up something here. There's obviously a lot that's going on in this film. There's a ton of themes which you take away from it. And yeah, obviously, you know, it, it could be easy to say, right, well, you're reading too much into it. It's a kid's film. But given that it's Dr. Seuss and he was known for writing books with messages for kids to take away, it, it seems, yeah, no, you're not reading too much into this. So it, it's often noted that, you know, there've been authors, like the ones who you mentioned before, Tim, like, you know, Lewis Carroll, the sort of stuff that, you know, he would have written and, and kids' films and literature can be dark and this definitely fits the bill in more conventional inverted commas adult dark stories it's a bit more obvious but when you make a kids film and you want to put in a serious subject matter like we have in this film you have to be clever about it so kids don't start taking valium at a really young age and some of the films may sugarcoat the subject matter i.e i'm looking at you walt disney and some may show something deliberately disturbing followed up by a light-hearted moment to take away the initial shock and you may not even realize just how bleak the subject matter is until you sort of verbalize which i was making notes about this and thinking oh shit there's a dungeon in this film and there's Mm -hmm. torture in this film and there's Mm -hmm. forms of disguised in in, making fun of musicians who aren't pianists it's right it's racism and bigotry disguised to make it a little bit more palatable for for kids, and there's unionism. There's you know stuff about pay negotiations, right. cross-dressing, and all kinds of other. Right. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I did get a very Frankenfurter moment out of that. He had a certain naive charm, but no muscle. So I wanted to say, as I was mentioning earlier, about the whole style of this film and the whole unique nature of it all, and this film for the time. You know, this, like I said, this was one of the the only films ad- adaptions of uh, Zeus where uh, Zeus actually moved to California to have hands-on in terms of the set design and in terms of the screenplay and, and the songs, the music, all of it. And you can tell when you see the illustrations in a Dr. Zeus book how it's got that off-kilter M.C. Escher kind of uh, weird you know, right. uh, geometric design to it. Th- this film is like all of that. And it's amazing how for such a, a low-budget film or a film of, of the past era, how amazingly creative it is and colorful. And it just jumps out at you. I mean, um, this film, to me, like I said, a lot of people owe their careers to this film. And the people I'm thinking of specifically in my mind were uh, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. Right. Be- I've, I've got a few other suggestions here. 
I reckon <laughs> Terry Gilliam. I reckon mm-hmm. uh, Guillermo, if I've got that right, Guillermo del Toro. Right. And even to a minor extent, just for the bizarrety rather than the look, David Lynch. Oh, big time. But I mean, you know, for example, did was it just me or did you guys get a total Beetlejuice vibe from this film? Uh, In terms of set design, it just reminded me a lot of Beetlejuice. Okay. I've got to confess that the set design, not so much the fact that they look the same or even similar, but the fact that it looked like it was always on a closed set. And this is possibly one of the weaknesses of, of the film was that it always looked like it was on a set. It looked like I was watching Star Trek, the original series, in, right. in that regard. But, See, I, you know, I kind of like that about it, though. It, it really felt like this insular little closed world, and because right. it had that very sort of stagey 40s, 50s, almost kind of musical look to it, where right. you know, it like was shot on certain stages. Yeah, right. I, I think right. that actually added something to it, personally. And- Sorry to interrupt oh, sorry. for a second, Tim, there, but an, a, another film which I think influenced 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, you, you'll have to come down to The Wizard of Oz. And The Wizard oh, of Oz gosh, yeah. is always looking like it's on a set, and yet it doesn't look so closed in like 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Mm-hmm. It, it, I don't find it as, I don't know what the expression I'm looking for is, but it, it still sort of seems, even though you know it's on a set, it still seems a lot more open. They made better use of the space than I think 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T does. And that's, yeah. I, I don't mean to sort of you know, trash it because there's a lot that I love about this film. But. Oh, it's, you know what it is that came before all of this that I think that it really has a real connection to, and that's the work of Fritz Lang. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think Metrop- Metropolis and Dr. Caligari, both of them, mm-hmm. have the same type of thing going on that you're talking about, that kind of closed set, but at the same time, it's so big. Right. Yeah, but I think that's why it kind of it works in this because it's you know the whole film is uh, Bart dreaming and it's it's not quite a nightmare but it's not a good dream and then mm-hmm. there is that constant feeling of, of being trapped and not being able to escape <laughs> that kind of oppressiveness of uh, Doctor Terwilliger's right. school. So and they do it in simple he, ways too. Like for example, the ladder when he's climbing up that ladder and he yeah. gets to the top and he and he's yeah, looking down there. and there's yeah. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned Escher before and. I mean, that hadn't occurred to me, but when you mentioned Escher, the first thing I thought of was the latter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, also, there's a part that when you think about it in um, Henry Selig's Nightmare Before Christmas, where there, there's that enigmatic uh, shot of uh, of Jack Skellington, where he's up there above the moon and he's on that kind of extended ridge. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. That's totally like barred on top of the ladder. Right. Like there's there's little things like there's little connections. I I I don't know. It just I had total Tim Burton vibe feelings all throughout this movie, and not only on top of that, but also in the music itself. Because a film that we haven't covered yet, Forbidden Zone, is a film that was directed by Richard Elfman, Danny Elfman's brother, mm-hmm. and it was originally black and white, and it's very 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 similar to this. Okay. And it, but it's actually a lot more raunchier, a lot more adult oriented, but it's a musical. A lot of the music numbers are very similar, and uh, I can see that as a direct uh, a direct influence to Five Hundred Fingers. I mean, Five Thousand Fingers. The other thing is, I thought was there's the uh, Danny Elfman when he did the score for uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. There's the whole, you know, the dan 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 like that that kind of that kind of thing. I see that all stemming from this with the ten little maidens, you know, with that song. I I see like kind of a direct parallel to so many so many different things. Well, as we're we're talking about the the music, what did you guys think of the 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 songs in this in general? I got to say that the set pieces with the music were actually the bits that worked the best for me in those films, where there was the action. Some of the moments, say, between Bart Collins and his mother or between Bart and uh, Mr. Zabladowski might have gotten... Maybe saccharin's a little too strong, but might have fallen a little bit flat. It only seemed to really come Mm -hmm. to life when Hans Conried was on screen and when they were doing those um, the the musical numbers. I thought the musical numbers were really, really strong. And something actually that I found out was that the film originally had uh, about another 10 or 11 songs that they ended up cutting out because they did a preview screening of the film 
and the original audience test response did not prove so terribly well. And as it turns out, the film was a flop when it was released properly anyway, but the studio got nervous and they cut 10 songs. But apparently if you buy the CD, which was released in the mid-2000s, every song that was recorded for the original mm -hmm. film is there, even if it doesn't appear in the released version of the film. And in fact, one of the songs that we'll no doubt be talking about a little bit later on, the, uh, the song while they're going down in the uh, elevator to the dungeon... Chopping blocks and hot boiling oil uh, has an extra verse that they were that the studio was worried was going to absolutely creep a lot of people out. They thought, oh, you've taken this one step too far. But <laughs> um, yeah, no, for me the songs worked absolutely. I, I loved them. I thought they were. I thought they were great. Right. And you know, actually, the film was up for the best score I think in '53 for the Academy Awards. It was, it was, yeah, Which, it was nominated, yeah. Right. So, but I think, you know, it's very interesting because there's also, I find the score, a lot of it reminded me of um, the the work of people like, you know, Carl Stalling, who did the yes. music for Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, like it, it had a very bouncy, kinetic quality to it that really took me back to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Raymond Scott. And Carl Stalin, yeah. Right. And also, you know, I, I just thought also as well how flouncy Hans Conried is. There's the one um, bit at the end where he's talking about his domido dud. Come on and dress me, dress me, dress me in my finest array. Cause just in case you haven't heard today's domido day. Dress me in my silver garters, dress me in my diamond studs, cause I'm going domi doing in my domi do duds. <laughs> put yeah. me in a put me in a blouse and put me in the redskin coat and blah blah blah. You know, it's going on and on. Like it's so ridiculous, you know, it's really, really funny. So and, talking uh, of uh, the, the Simpsons, as we were earlier, Tim, there is uh, a specific yeah. episode where uh, Mr. Right, Burns that was is, the one. Uh, Right, with oh, his dog, his dog skin coat. Yeah. His dog skin coat, exactly. right? What was it called? Uh, see my, my vest. Oh, see my vest. That's what it was. Oh, yeah. Talking about that. Oh, that makes so much sense now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, as soon as I saw this, I went, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know. Isn't it funny, though, now that you're watching this, like I'm saying, it's almost like he's, like, you know, going on about, like I say, this whole cross-dressing thing. And it's just like he's just so, he's so flighty. In that, you know, and it, and it's just so funny. Like, I could just see like somebody like Charles Nelson Riley or Paul Lynn doing that up really well. Yeah. See, yeah. I, I'm not sure that I, I agree about Paul Lind. I think you know, sort of Hans Conried has the right. I mean, well, okay, so another problem that I had with the film was that maybe there wasn't quite enough menace, but Hans Conried just sort of straddles that line enough. Whereby he's he's you know a little bit buffoonish, but you know a little bit evil. Whereas I think you know Paul Lind would have just you know he would have uh, come on and said this whole place smells of five thousand <laughs> fingers. I'm not going to go into yeah, yeah. this is a PG rated podcast. Uh, <laughs> but well, I I just think uh, his character though you're funny. Like you and I were having the conversation, Morris, about you said that. It it could have been better, you said, if you thought Danny Kay right. had taken over the role of Hans Conrad. But I think Danny Kay, though, would have actually been even nicer. I mean, he, Danny Kay really didn't doesn't have the the menace to me or the bite. I mean, yeah, Hans Conrad right. had a little bit of it, but I think he had an, enough. If he had too much of it, like for example, you know, if we had had Dennis Hopper instead of Hans Conrad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Come here, kid. You, you got happy fingers. <laughs> you know, like no, no. While, no. while Roy Orbison been... plays in the background, right? Mm. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, look, just at this stage, because I think for the the listeners out there who may not have seen the film yet, and I say yet because I hope that you go out and search it out. I've given a basic plot synopsis, but maybe we should expand a little bit on what actually happens 
plot-wise when Bart falls into his dream. So, you know, he he winds up in this prison camp, if you want to call it, really, and that's what it is, right. Where doc, which is Dr. Tewilika's school, and he's going to open the next day, and he's expecting, like, a group of buses to come and bring in 500 uh, young boys who are going to play at the world's largest piano and play all the music from the Dr. Tewilika Book of Piano Studies in the uh, Tewilika Institute. Bart's mother is working like as his secretary and August Zabladowski is doing all the plumbing for for the uh, Institute. And basically they say, we cannot open the school until you get all the plumbing work done. And that has to be one of the most original plot points I think I've ever seen. And if, we can't open the school until all the plumbing is correct. Yeah. We won't get the license, you know, we, we uh, cleanliness license or whatever you want to call it until, uh, yeah. I thought that was an absolute uh, brilliant little plot point there. So, right. um, so much, as I said before, much hijinks ensues. And uh, I, I want to sort of like use that as, as a bounce off point, if we can, to sort of talk about some of the set pieces, some of the, uh, some of well, the things that actually happen. I was going to say one thing to me is... You know, Freud would have had a heyday with this film. Oh, shit, yeah. And, I mean, this is totally, like, to me, it's a Freudian examination of a young boy's subconscious Mm -hmm. and all the worries that he has. I like, you talk about set pieces and these things where everything just kind of has a way to kind of float into the next space. Like, there are a lot of ways that they actually fade in and fade out to the different sets is through a hole in the floor mm-hmm. or a hole in the ceiling yes and it's mm-hmm. you know and it's just a simple simple little you know like like i say somebody through you know like a simple black hole in the ceiling and the kid pokes his head through and next thing you know he's into the next set you know like these little mouse holes and i just thought that was really a neat effective way to kind of portray you know the kind of storybook or dreamlike quality of of the film is that everything is just so simple see because it's a dream you can get away with things like that right right i forgot to mention before while we're talking about filmmakers who this would have been an influence on there are two other films which came to mind. Actually, I think one of them was something that you'd gone and suggested to me. Was uh, you believe that this is a very strong influence on Yellow Submarine? Was that your? Did you say that to me, Tim? I think you might. Have. Oh yeah, Yellow Submarine is a big one too. Yeah, because Yellow Submarine with the holes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. But just, absolutely. but just the whole, just the whole look of it as well. The, the, right. The, this great big technicolor look and the other one, very obvious one. And I think you also mentioned uh, Roald Dahl before. So Willy Wonka. And the chocolate factory would—they would have had to have been uh, fans of uh, of this film, right? Yeah, I well, think you can see that definitely. There's the one song actually when they're traveling through the tunnel and the uh, the Willy, you know, like no one knows which way we're, we're going. going. <laughs> There's no earthly way of knowing. <laughs> He's singing. Which direction we are going? Yeah, like that that whole trippy where the the psychedelic light show bit. I think that's very connected to this as well. So, so let me ask you this, Tim: If uh, Gene Wilder had been around twenty years before, or if in fact Doctor T was being made uh, in the early seventies, do you think Gene Wilder could have pulled off that mix of menace and goofiness? Because by the end of Willy Wonka, it's it's not exactly menacing. But where he no. he has that he has that confrontation with Charlie's grandfather and Charlie, you stole my everlasting gobstopper. You stole this. Oh, you, you put fizzy drink on my ceiling. Good day, sir. Do, do you think he could have provided a little bit more menace in Doctor T? Or I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a hard thing to say. It's mm. a really hard thing to say. But right. um, but you know the one I I don't know who the actor was off the top of my head right now. But the one guy that I always always creeped me out as a kid and it always stuck in my mind was uh the child catcher and chitty chitty bang bang do you, do you know what i'm talking about bernie uh yep yeah, i can't remember his name either but uh but he's that real skinny guy hello children come and have some candy um, hang on i'm looking him up as we speak oh it's been oh man 40 and, and, like, years that, since i've seen it that guy had the absolute menace and this guy and this Robert Helpman. Was that Robert oh. Helpman? As in the, yes. the, the ballet dancer? Yes, it was, yes. Holy moly. Yeah, yeah he, was he was unbelievable. He was Australian, wasn't he? He was, he was, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was unbelievable. 
Like, I mean, he just said that sickly, sweet kindness, but you knew there was all rotten menace underneath of it, you know? It's in Patrick, isn't he? He's the doctor in Patrick. Oh my right, God, right, that's right, right, yeah. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, why? Yeah. But I think the thing is, too, initially, that we have to remember that this was meant for kids. And this was purely meant, you know, I mean, here's the thing. I think that today, you know, in our day and age, everything has to be two-tiered, like like Pixar and, and Disney, how they, they make it, you know, directly, you know, palatable for kids. But they also have to have that underlying sense of irony or the, the uh, subjective content for their parents, you know. But I think that this film, it was made directly for kids. It wasn't, I don't think it was meant to entertain adults. I don't think this well, film was really. Um, it's interesting you, you say that, Tim, because I, I think that's its greatest strength and in in the same well, in, in kind of its its greatest weakness as well, in a way. Because full mm-hmm. disclosure, I didn't dislike it, but I found it a bit of a slog, to be honest. And mm-hmm. I think if if I'd have seen this when I was a child, it would have been one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. But coming to it now, um, right. I think it it's so geared to a you know a, a kind of you know to to kids as you say i i think um yeah. It, yeah it would work perfectly for them but for me i wouldn't say i had issues with it but certainly um it, you know i'm not going to be rushing back to uh, to watch it uh, mm-hmm. again to be honest with you so no no i understand completely no i i got no problem with that at all there's but a lot you to know admire and a lot to mm-hmm. you know see there but it just didn't I mean, quite, that, uh, see, didn't quite click with me as a as a grown up you know see yeah bernie i, I guess i sort of felt a similar way that I loved so much of this film in terms of the ideas that it presented rather than necessarily in, in the, the final execution. execution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. As I said before, the song and dance numbers were, were great. And I actually even had a couple of laugh out loud uh, moments, which I sort of want to talk about. But yeah, there was, there was still something underlying there. I don't know, maybe if it was because it was the film of its era i think you're right it's very much of its era i mean the um mm-hmm. some of the uh the musical sequences particularly when they go down into the uh the dungeon with uh all the the green people who all look like the incredible hulk incidentally because right. they had right. red trousers and they were green or they look uh, like uh extra star trek but yeah the the uh the, you know it's it's kind of it's dante's circle of hell for uh musicians right. who don't play the piano Yep. Um, right. And again, there was a lot to admire in that scene, but it, it just seemed to go on too long for me. It was, um, you know, I was kind of looking at my watch after about five minutes. It's like, yeah, right. I get it, you know. Right. And I've got to say and as I well, think... the, the songs themselves were, mm-hmm. I didn't find them that memorable. Again, the idea and the sentiment they're putting across was fine, but as songs, I just I, I didn't feel that they worked that well for me. So it's it, it felt like... They just weren't quite hitting the mark. They were sort of near misses, you know. If you look at a lot of musicals, then the songs really leap out at you and and just right. sort of ingrain themselves into your brain. And in this, they were just sort of incidental to the uh, to the whole look and feel of the film. And well, I felt like the level of craft that went into the songs wasn't quite there. wasn't as uh, you know what what was needed to actually make them decent, memorable songs. For me personally, right. I mean, you know, obviously this is right. all personal thing. Yeah, I, I felt a little let down with the uh, with the musical aspect of it, to be honest. Well, I'm in the minority I here, obviously, but <laughs> one no, no, one thing, one thing that I think that really kind of explains what you're feeling that yeah, you also have to remember that Zeus was never a musical guy, and that sure, his yeah. writing yeah. is poetry. And so I yeah. think that what they were trying, and this was the first film adaption of, of his work. And so I think that what they were trying to do was kind of find a way to bridge his kind of, you know, quirky writing into music. And I think that a lot of times poetry has to stand on its own meter. It has to stand on its own kind of, you know, style, like its own rhyming scheme and whatever, yeah. you, you know, couplets and things. And I think that, to try to, you know, and that's why people like uh, do si do day or whatever the, the that song. Yeah, the dress me in the do si do way. It, it just seems so, uh, so kind of weird 
the way it's it's almost but like it, hip. Interestingly, I thought that was one of the more successful songs in the film. Come on and dress me, dress me, dress me in my finest array. Cause just in case you haven't heard today's Dormido Day, dress me in my silver garters, dress me in my diamond studs. Cause I'm going, go me doing in my Dormido duds. Because it was so right. obviously very, very Dr. Seuss. Some of those lines, you know, you go, I want my organdy snood. Come on and dress yeah, yeah, me up yeah. in liverwurst and camembert cheese. I want my undulating right. undies with the marabou thrills. And actually, I mean, we're saying this is a kid's film. I mean, undulating. Undulating means moving. Yeah, I, I he wants a pair of yeah, self-moving undies. underwear. That's more Frankenfurter than uh, than kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That, that, that bit in the, the dungeon where we're seeing all those guys, or all the uh, musicians who don't play the piano, doing their dance, and Bart's looking at them from a distance to see what actually goes on in the dungeon. And I got to ask you guys, did that look like the GGTMC house band? <laughs> It's very juicy, I think. So what was that? Yeah, yeah I think there's a couple of guys playing a skin flute in there, maybe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, oop. I was gonna say uh, the one other song that was the one with the uh, uh, what was it? Uh, the plumber and Bart's mom and Bart, where they're talking. I mean, no, sorry, it was about the uh, the plumber and uh, Twilliger and Bart's mom. Where today is a day to go out. Uh, yes. What's the uh, uh, fabulous, fabulous weather. Should we dance? Don't mind if I do. Come on, it's time we got together, cause it's get together weather, and in get together weather, together is just what we got to get. Come on, the, the weatherman's weather insisting this is weather beyond resisting. This is get together weather, together is just what we got to get. What wonderful weather to go on an outing. What wonderful weather to run around shouting. What wonderful weather for love to be sprouting. It's mighty fine weather, I hope that it stays. What glorious weather for zipping and zooming. What glorious weather for hearts to be blooming. What glorious weather for brining and grooming. It's mighty fine weather we're having. Fabulous weather. That seems like a real Dr. Seuss song, too. I mean, what fabulous weather for looping and leaping. What fabulous weather for bipping and yes. beeping. Yeah, for yeah. snipping and yeah. snapping and snooping and sneeping. I mean, no, you, yeah. if you didn't yeah. know that Dr. Seuss was associated with this film, you would have listened to that and thought, that sounds like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. Very yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we should. I, I just want to describe that scene a little bit to give the listeners a bit of a mental picture. And so early on, when you know, Bart convinces Mr. Zabladowski to go and rescue his mother from the clutches of uh, Dr. T, we get uh, Zabladowski and Tawelika having a hypnotizing duel. That's, I think it's choreographed really beautifully. They're, they're both, right. it's sort of like a Western or, or like a tough guy film, but instead of two guys slogging it out and punching each other in the jaw, they're hypnotizing each other or they're attempting to hypnotize each other and the choreography i mean we're not talking gene kelly or george shakiris although ironically he actually is in the film as as an extra in the dungeon but the, the two of them what they do it's absolutely beautifully timed and um they I do you know love... that made me um that made me think of a martial arts kind of film to be honest the way oh, they actually, were kind yeah, of okay. yeah, bouncing yeah, yeah. around each yeah. other and strange little poses and right. so on yeah, that, I, I agree. That leads into the song and dance where the three of them doing this, you know, get together weather song. Right. And basically, that, that's the point where Bart's mother and Dr. T are trying to convince uh, Zabladowski that he needs to do finish off the plumbing. You know, he says, "Oh, I shouldn't be here." Says, "Oh no, we need the plumbing. The school depends on your fine work." And then they sort of sing this song about enjoying the day, and it's this get together weather, and it's a good day for friendship. When in fact, you know, really underneath it all, they just want him to get on with um, doing what he needs to do so they can get the license to run this prison camp. But the song actually reminded me, because of the choreography and the two men and one woman sort of scenario, reminded me a lot of uh, the song uh, Good Morning from uh, Singing in the Rain. And I even thought that Mary Healy sounded a lot like Debbie Reynolds. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. When you're talking about them having the hypnotizing duel, mm-hmm. it reminded me of uh, the sharks and the jets. When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When you're a jet, let them do what they can. You've got brothers around, you're a family man. 
Yes, yes. yeah, yeah. Very much. With the knives. You know, and uh, yep, what's yep, really yep. funny, West Side Story was after this. So yep. I thought, you know, that was kind of interesting because I thought, you know, West Side Story was 61. That's what it was. Right. And and I just, you know, when I saw Hans Conrad and the plumber going at it, I thought, wait a minute, I've seen this before. And the way they were <laughs> dancing and, and and pulling punches and, like, do, and do, you know, ducking each other out, it totally reminded me of, you know, like I say, the switchblade well, dance as, routine in West Side Story. As I said, uh, George Shakiris, who plays Bernardo in uh, West Side Story, had like a, a role, well, not a speaker, he right. was one of the extras in, in the dungeon scene. So I'm wondering if, you know, when he right. got the, the role for West Side Story, he said, hey, listen, you know, we, there was some, there was some uh, interesting choreography in this film I did eight years ago. Maybe you want to right. think about using some of that. Right. It's just, I don't know what it is, but there's just so many elements of this film that I've seen incorporated so many ways over the years. It's, it's just like, I don't know, it just seems like, to me, 5,000 Fingers is like an inkwell that everybody's just dipped a pen into, you know? I want to ask you this, guys. Tell me, and I might be reading too much from this, but I wonder if there's even a minor influence from the relationship between uh, Dr. T and Bart Collins into um, the band leader and the drummer in Whiplash. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? I, I don't know. Sure you do. The tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? <laughs> I, th- I think you're reading <laughs> a little too much into that, Morris. But having uh, said you that, know, I, I could write a whole you say that. that. Totally. No, I, I can see why that, that would kind of make yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, I think what it is is that there's two, there's two aspects of child rearing. Like, for example, I, I look at this from the perspective of, you know, you get sports parents. Yes. And the sports parents where they're actually yeah. driving their kids to, to be the best sure, baseball yeah. player, basketball player, whatever, and then they, they chew the kids out when the kids don't excel, even if the kids like it or not. And then, you know, but with uh, – what's his name there? The plumber is uh, uh, Zabladowski. When he's talking to the mother and at the beginning of the film and he says, you know, hey, you know, she says – He's going to play that piano until it's the end of time. And then he says, well, maybe it might be good if he doesn't play the piano. And, you know, and he's the kind of guy, he's laissez-faire. He's just kind of, you know, he wants Bart to do what Bart wants to do, you know. Very end of the film, without giving anything away, it's fairly apparent which side uh, Dr. Seuss comes down on, isn't it? Right. It's yes. the last shot of the film, right. um, which but, I thought was but, really but nice one... after what went before. Yeah. One thing I loved about this, too, was like I was going to say, there's the bit where, you know, when Bart's having his dream, he's got no one to turn to. And he's actually asking Mr. Zabladowski, you know, help me out, man. You got to help me out. And he say, no, no, no. I got my job. Leave me alone, kid. I won't get paid. I won't get paid. And then he starts pretending that he's fishing. And then all of a sudden, Zabladowski, you know, just jumps right in with him. And they both of them are bass fishing on the boat. And I thought that was so cool. Whereas, you know. That's what the kid wants to do, and he obliges him. And then the next thing you know, he's right on board with the kid, you know? Mm. Uh, I, I was going to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about the, um, again, talk about the uh, the ending, but with, you know, again, not giving anything away. But, uh, Is this the, the atomic? Plan. Is it atomic? Yes, sir, very atomic! Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> the the plan very that Bart and uh, Zabladowski come up with to sort of disrupt... The uh, the giant piano and the, the five thousand finger recital at the end, it's, I mean, it makes absolute sense in kind of childlike logic. Yes, it's just such a perfectly kid thing to do, and I, I just really like that. I thought that that worked very well. In and as you were saying earlier, Tim, this film is so totally directed at kids, and I, I guess that Seuss's genius is that he was able to actually put himself inside a, a child's head. Mm-hmm. Not literally, of course. And, you know, kind of get that stuff out there. And, yeah, I think he captures that really well with the uh, with the little plan they have at the end. Because it makes no sense. Of course it wouldn't work. But, it, of course, it does work, you know? Because it's... So. Well, I mean, because, Tim, uh, yeah, you mentioned before that the music sounded like it you know, belonged in a Warner Brothers cartoon. But this has the wackiness uh, yes. and the imagination of a lot of those uh, Warner Brothers well, cartoons. So it does work in that the, the, When Bart and Zabladowski are doing their uh, little fishing thing, 
again, Seuss is kind of saying that, you know, the imagination is still there. It's in all of us. Mm-hmm. And we're all on this mm-hmm. kind of level. You know, we can still connect like mm-hmm. this. If you're a grown up with all your uh, concerns about the working world or you're a kid, it's still, you know, take a break, use your imagination and go fishing. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. There was actually a Warner Brothers cartoon, now that you mention it, that I remember seeing as a kid where they were in an elevator. And I don't know if it was in a hotel or what. And it was Porky Pig and Daffy Duck. And the guy running the elevator it looked like he had an anvil on his head with two eyes poked out of it. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not kidding. I'm yeah. not kidding you, man. Wow. So, I mean, Well, yeah. can we talk a little bit about that scene in the film? They're going down in an elevator to the the musician's hell where they're going to be uh, you know, locked up and kept away except, except Bart's going to be brought up every day to play the piano but he's going to end up in the cage every night rather than in his you know, room and in his quarters. And so there's the group of them going down with uh, with this very sinister-looking uh, elevator driver with, you know, I, I don't know if it's a balaclava or an anvil or whatever it was mm. that he had over his head. It's like an upside-down bucket or something. Yeah, exactly. the ice. Yeah. Pyramid yeah. head. And yeah. he's, he's singing this song as, they, as the elevator goes down very slowly and he's calling out what is on each floor. Of, um, of the dungeon as they, as they go down. And the missing verse, and you can find the whole version of the song on YouTube, but the missing verse, he sings, third floor dungeon, household appliances, uh, spike beds, electric chairs, gas chambers, roasting pots, and scalping devices. And uh, I think that the film, uh, the, the film studio had said, we'll never get away with this. And they cut that verse out of the song. But as I said, because of the CD coming out in the mid-2000s, yeah. it's all been reinstated. I can, um, I can so, understand that choice considering the, uh, you know, when this was made. That but, makes uh, sense. But as I was saying like earlier on in the program, I think a lot of this stuff only gets scary when you sort of articulate it. It, it comes back to what I call, I guess, the Three Stooges effect. When, when my son Max was really, really young, like, you know, three or four years old, I wanted to show him Three Stooges stuff. And, you know, my wife had never watched any, but she says, oh, that's violent, isn't it? I said, trust me, I watched it. I never went and poked anyone in the eye. Uh, but mm-hmm. when, if you describe it to someone who's never watched it and you say, well, it features uh, guys being poked in the eye and people being hit on the head with frying pans and hammers and, yeah. and all that sort of thing, when you articulate it, it seems really, really quite dark and disturbing. And, and when you think about what's in this film, I mean, the lyrics like that, when you mention it, when you want to talk about it, it, it does seem very, very dark. And yet, because of right. the mood of the film, uh, it, it doesn't have that menace. I, I, I've gone and said already, uh, maybe we needed someone a, l- a little bit more menacing than Hans Conried, but maybe the filmmakers, they knew what they were doing. They thought, no, well, we mm. still want to get the G rating, and if we go any darker right. than this. And and you- in, two, in the 2000s nowadays, you would never make it like that. I'm not, I reckon they no. would, if someone thought about it, Dr. T could be made again, but they would never take that lighthearted thing because kids nowadays, they're used to seeing dark stuff, and it would be right. probably an M-rated film. Uh, it would be like Dr. T meets Saw, something like that. <laughs> right, absolutely, yes. Uh, talk- Eli Roth is working on the remake of this, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You talked about God. the Stooges. I noticed there were some there were some real Stoogisms in this film as well with all the guards. And I noticed yes. like some some of yeah. the guards, come here, you you guys go over there. What are you guys doing? Uh, like you know, it was just that kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There was some of that going on in this. And I was going to say, too, that, Bernie, are you familiar with the band, the Aquabats? Yeah, of course. Yes, yes. They, they, you all those guards from, you? totally look like the Aquabats, eh? Yeah, of course. Now you say that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I really loved the how, uni- the, how the guards looked. Uh, the, yeah, the uniforms were amazing. Yeah, very good. And they, and they had that, the one wrestler dude that always made me laugh in this film where he's like, what, is use use a piano player? Oh no no, you don't belong here, man. We got no room for piano players. 
<laughs> Scratchy violins and screechy yeah. piccolos. That's that's big. One thing I don't understand. Highest order. One question I have is, you know, seeing as it was a musician's hell and all, how come we didn't see you two as the house band? <laughs> I don't think they got quite that that, that that many circles down into hell. They're, they're no. right yeah, right. They were yeah, just scratching so. the surface, man. I think they're yeah. they were at, you know, Enrique Iglesias and, you know, that kind of thing. Like they had, they hadn't quite uh, quite got down there and into the core yeah. yet. Right. All right. A few more circles so, to work. So let's summarize then they're feeling like, you know, uh would you would you recommend this film? Like I mean I know the one thing I, I want to say is that, as we said, it was made for kids. And we said that, like you just said, Morris, you know, it, if it was made today, it would be very different. But do you think that this film is too dry for kids today? Or do you think it would, it's far too dull for kids today that, you know, it would be hard to recommend to them? Once again, it depends on the kids. If the kids uh not of um, a family where the parents watch films with them. Like, you know, we, we see a lot of posts on Facebook from uh, from Will of the GGTMC or um, Scott Clickers of uh, Married with mm-hmm. Clickers who are always watching films with their kids, uh, old films, new films, and they sit and they have a conversation about it with them afterwards. So the kids have a great appreciation of the history of film. So I think that if you're watching this, if you're listening to this out there and you haven't, shown this to your kids and you like you've gone and let them watch uh, other old things you know say like uh, you know a Danny Kaye film The Court Jester I mean if you've watched humorous films like that not that this is quite like that in terms of plot or anything like that but if they're if they're used to that old style look with a few songs and lots of humor then yeah I would completely recommend it but if you're only um, if you've not been sort of showing your kids older films and they're not used to it, and they're only sort of like you know used to watching films that are sort of aimed at maybe teenagers. So stuff that's you know, a little bit of a, a wink and a nod, and it's not quite that innocent. Then probably I imagine that today's kids won't get anything out of it. But if your kids are a little bit more adventurous and they're willing to sort of see something that's older than ten years old, yeah, most hundred percent. Even notwithstanding, and I see what you say. Bernie, I mean, I, I had some reservations about it too, but overall, I think the positives about this film for me outweigh any of the reservations that I had. So yeah, I'd completely recommend it. Yeah, do you know, despite what I said, I think I would as well. I'm, I'm pretty much in agreement with you, Morris. If uh, if your kids are adventurous and you've kind of brought them up in such a way as to appreciate things that aren't just you know Toy Story or whatever. Not to diss Toy Story, of course, no, no, but great... st- stuff absolutely. But you know, stuff of that ilk. Then um, you know, I, I think one of the strengths of this film is that it's a, a very good distillation of childhood. It's you know, it's only going to make sense to you if if, if you're a kid uh, in, in in some way. So yeah, if you think your children will be open to that, then yeah, show it to them definitely. Tim, do you have any uh, uh, any uh, friends with young kids who you would say, hey, get this get this in front of them? Yeah, like, you know, there's things that are timeless. Like, to me, like, for example, not to go off on a tangent, but, like, you know, a film like something like The Iron Giant, Brad Bird's The Iron right. Giant. Right. That's an absolute, you know, I don't care what age you are or what generation you come from, man. Like, there's things in it that just speak for the ages. And I, and I think that there's things in this film that do as well. I mean, whereas you still have kids that take piano lessons, you still have kids that like music or or you you still have parents that force kids to do things they don't want to do that's never going to go away and kids can relate to that and when they see a kid in a predicament you know and how he tries to get her out of his predicament i think you know that's kind of a a universal thing that a lot of kids can see and say yeah like i i can get into this i totally i totally would recommend this and not even that is I also recommend this to people who are into cult cinema because, I mean, this is a definitive cult film if there ever was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could see this running on a midnight screening alongside of Fantasia or something like that. Or I could see uh, people getting a little uh, little green and sitting back and having a fun <laughs> time with this. De- definitely. Because... Uh, you know, just because of the whole the layout of all of this, you know, it, it's just a cartoon come to life in many ways. 
you know, and I think it's a real interesting thing to, like I say, like kind of uh, side it up against things that came later, like Beetlejuice or Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And Actually, I, I think you might have said to me, Allegro non troppo. I said Yellow Submarine before, but it was Allegro non troppo that you said to me that you could see this as being a good double with. Have I got that right? right. Yeah, it was Allegro, Allegro non troppo, but then also we, I think we were talking about the Yellow Submarine with the holes. Yes. That, that was one that really stuck out too. This isn't like Bernie said, this isn't something I'm going to pull out all the time, but this is something that I wanted to cover because I thought it would be fun and it, you know, and it's kind of left of center. It's not something that's relatively well known, but it's something that I think everyone out there should uh, take it upon themselves. If you have kids, or even if you don't, just uh, take a look at this on a Sunday afternoon. It's good rainy Sunday afternoon type of film, you know. Right. Now, thanks very much for picking this one because, as I said, for years I sort of thought, oh, I should really see that, and uh, I'm I'm glad that I now had the excuse that I just I had to. So uh, no, thanks very much well, for picking that one, Tim. That's the thing I love about our podcast here is that we can go all the way from G.G. Allen to the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. G. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I, I would like to say as well that, um, you know, even, even though this film wasn't entirely successful for me, there's a, an awful lot here to recommend it. So, um, yeah, I think you should all check it out out there, definitely. Mm, mm. All right, guys. Well, looks like we're going to call it a, a wrap here. Well, Another episode. Well, before we do. Before yep. we do, we've got two more things to do. Uh, Bernie, That's right. it's your pick next month. It is. I'm ready. Do you guys want to know what we're going to be covering? Drum roll. I'm, I'm waiting with uh, bated breath. We are going to get cosmic, guys. We are going to be watching and discussing the 1974 movie, Space is the Place. Oh, nice. Sun rat action going on. So, um, nice. Yeah. You've gone and made Tim a very happy man. I haven't seen it. Me either. I've, again, film. another film I've wanted to see for ages. So, and I'll, I'll be interested on your, in uh, your take on this, Morris, as you're a bit of a jazz aficionado. Oh, yeah, and I, I, I do like sun, I do like Sun Ra. So. Yeah, well, perfect then. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, space is the place, people. Terrific. Wow. Actually, that'll, that'll be a, That'll be a um, a really good uh, double podcast for me uh, for next month because uh, Love That Album is going to be having a jazz month in uh, November. I'll oh, be getting together with okay. uh, uh, Rodrigo and uh, and I will be discussing oh, uh, each. We'll, we'll each be picking three jazz albums that we really dig and just talking about them. So six oh, six man. jazz albums in, in shorter form than, than we normally cover. So, uh, yes, a lot of jazz next month. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Whoa. That's and, great. Probably other thing I want to mention is if uh, there are any listeners out there who are not on our Facebook page and want to uh, join, um, we're at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here, S-E-E-H-E-A-R. If you uh, wish to join and start up some discussion and make some recommendations to us for absolutely uh, music-related films. Uh, we've covered three out of our four requests for this year. I get the feeling that we're probably not going to get to our fourth request until early next year. My apologies to whoever that was for. I think it might have actually been Eric. So, um, sorry, Eric, but we will get to your film uh, early 2016, I promise. So, yeah, there's our uh, Facebook page, and if you want to send an email, uh, then send it to seeherepodcast at gmail.com. we love to hear from you. Yeah, please write to us. Otherwise, we'll get very And upset. on that note, uh, yeah. we, wish, we wish everybody a happy week, and we all hope you have happy fingers out there. All right. Cheers, guys. Keep practicing. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.